Well, good morning, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff, and it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here with the Hallows Church. And it's, uh, it's also my privilege this morning to, to open our Bibles together to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our journey through this study called Stories of Faith. And we're close to wrapping up this study. It's been a good journey as we've been looking at all these different stories of faith from the Old Testament. We've been looking at these various, various stories of individuals whose, whose lives were marked by a type of faith that was pleasing to God and that was commended uh, by God. And so these stories have something very important to teach us, that is to be sure. And along the way, we've seen some rather ordinary people doing some very extraordinary things for God in their lives, essentially because they took God at His word. They believed Him, and they believed the promises that He had made to them. We've talked about Moses and Abel, right? We talked about Enoch and Abraham. We talked about Rahab last week and others along the way, too. And as we come to verse 32 today, the author is going to begin to kind of wrap up this chapter with a final list of Old Testament characters for us to consider. And the way he goes about this is very interesting, and it has something important to, to say to us today, I think, about the Christian faith and about the Christian life. And in some ways, what this passage has to say to us today will be uh, a rather heavy message, but in other ways, it has for us an incredibly hopeful message too. And one of the reasons we need to press into this passage today and really feel the weight of this passage is because the truth of the matter is many Christians today, and many non-Christians too for that matter, they have a rather defective view of what the Christian life really is. And this passage, I think, is tremendously important in helping to clear away some of the confusion about what the Christian faith is, what the Christian life is, and what the Christian life actually guarantees to us. Now, one of the real keys to understanding this passage, as we're going to see, is to realize that the author here of the book of Hebrews is not putting a single group of people before us to consider in this passage. Rather, he's putting two groups of people before us to consider. There's a division in verse 35 that separates these two groups, in fact. And very interestingly, both of these groups had faith, and both of these groups were commended by God because of their faith, but these two different groups of people had lives that, that took very different turns as they walked with God and as they uh, trusted God and His promises. But before we talk about these two different groups of people, I want to be certain that we're clear on why this letter, why this letter that you and I know as the book of Hebrews was written in the first place and to whom it was written. You see, it was written to a group of Christians who were living uh, in a time where there was much moral decay and much moral decline in the surrounding culture. It was also written at a time when it was not at all popular to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, the Christians to whom this letter was written, were, uh, they were struggling in many ways. They were facing much uh, persecution and discrimination by the society uh, around them because of their allegiance to Jesus. And so this letter was written to Christians who at times were feeling overwhelmed and who at times were uh, feeling like giving up. In fact, the central focus of this entire letter is the author saying to his original readers and really saying to you and I today too, hang on, Christian. 
Don't give up. Don't fall away. Keep trusting God. Keep, keep believing his promises. The author of Hebrews wants to give his readers what they need to face the challenges of living life as a follower of Jesus in a time and a place where the, the cultural climate with respect to Christianity was changing, and it was changing rather quickly and not in a good way. And very importantly for us, what we're going to be given here in this particular passage is a, a glimpse of the type of balanced faith, the type of balanced perspective that you and I really need most to handle all that can and will come at us in this fallen world. And, to, and I want to draw out of this passage three things that we see about a balanced faith. We're going to see that a balanced faith performs. We're going to see that a balanced faith perseveres. And we're going to see that a balanced faith also hopes. First, a balanced faith performs. And so we have two groups of people, as I mentioned. Now let's talk about the first group of people first. They're in verses 32 to 35. And as we do, we're going to see in them a faith, a faith that performs, a, a faith that produces, a faith that produces real and remarkable effects by the power of God in the lives of the people of God. Verse 32 tells us who some of these people are. It mentions Gideon and Barak. It mentions Samson and Jephthah. It mentions David and Samuel and the prophets. And listen to what we're told about how their, how their faith performed and what their faith accomplished. We're told in verse 33 that it was because of their faith that, that kingdoms were conquered, that justice was enforced, and that the mouths of lions were shut. You may recognize that one. That's Daniel, of course. Daniel was thrown into a den of lions in Daniel chapter 6. It looked like he was doomed. It looked like he was dead, but then he walked out of that den unharmed. He escaped certain death. And why? How? Because of his faith, we're told. We're told in verse 34 that it was by faith that the power of fire was quenched. That's a reference to Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. They were thrown into a fiery furnace because they would not bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so it looked like they were doomed too. It looked like they were facing imminent death as well, but they came out of that furnace unharmed. They were delivered from certain death. Why? Because of their faith, we're told. We're also told in verse 34 that by faith some escaped the edge of the sword we're told that by faith the weak were made strong. We're told that by faith enemies were scattered. We see in this group of people again and again faith performing, faith giving rise to deliverance and rescue and miraculous interventions by God. Now, of course, perhaps the greatest of all the climax of this list is in verse 35 where we're told that by faith women received back their dead. You see, in the Old Testament, there were two women whose sons died. There was the widow of Zarephath and the, the Shunammite woman. And then you see, what you see is Elijah and Elisha, respectively, coming to their aid. And, and you see that by faith, the sons of these two women were brought back to life. They were brought back from the dead. And these are incredible stories. I love these stories. Against overwhelming odds, God's 
God shows up in the lives of his people and he does the unexpected. He shows up in the lives of his people and he does the impossible. He shows up and he makes a way where there was none. Why? Because of their faith, because of the faith of his people. We love these stories, don't we? I know I do. But just a quick side note as we as we think about these particular stories of faith today, you may say, well, my faith isn't that strong. I don't really have a faith like that. You know, I've done, a, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. If that's what you're thinking today, I want to encourage you. Don't ever count yourself out. Don't ever doubt that God won't uh, show up in your life like the, the ways that he did in these stories. Because everyone in this list, and in fact, everyone across this entire chapter, you see, they all struggled and stumbled at times, in one way or another. They most certainly did not have it all figured out. Gideon demanded signs from God, and he led Israel into sin. Samson struggled with sexual immorality and broke his, his covenant with God. Jephthah was on the verge of sacrificing his own daughter. David committed adultery with a woman and then had, his, had her husband murdered in, a, in an attempt to, to cover it up. And yet what you see again and again here and across the entire Bible are people, people with very flawed lives, nevertheless living by faith and walking uh, by faith and being used by God because of their faith in remarkable ways. And how encouraging is that, friends, that when the author of the book of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he remembers these people and when he writes about these people, he does not remember them for their faults or their flaws. No, he remembers them and he commends them for their faith. Let's not lose sight of this ever. God does not expect or require that your faith be perfect in order for him to, to use you and uh, to use your life in some very big ways, just as he did in the lives of these people stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the fire that was about to consume. He did it then, and he still does it today. And these are indeed the stories of faith we love to hear. They resonate with us. They encourage us. They inspire us. Someone says to you, the doctor gave me only a month to live, but I didn't give up hope. I, I prayed and I fought, and now that disease is gone. I've recovered. And the doctors, they say they have no idea how that just happened. Or someone says, my business was about to go under. I was facing economic disaster, but I prayed and I had faith and I worked uh, very hard and God turned it around and now I'm back on track. Or another says, I was being crushed under the weight of addiction. I was in bondage and enslaved to these various things in my life, but God, he set me free and my life has been radically changed as a result. You've heard the stories. We love these stories. I hope you've experienced these stories in your own life. We love these stories and we should. God showing up and, and moving in powerful ways in the lives of his people. But we do need to be careful in this too. Because many people have an understanding of the Christian faith that really stops right there at verse, at verse 35 with this first group of people that we just talked about. There are some who would say, if only you... Uh, pray hard enough, if only you believe hard enough, if only your faith is strong enough, then you can overcome anything and anyone. If you have faith, if you just have enough faith, God will, God will show up. He will give you health. 
He will give you wealth. He will give you victory. And if any one of those things are lacking in your life, they would say it is because something is lacking in your faith. But there is a serious problem with that sort of teaching. It simply does not square with what Jesus said. It does not square up with what the apostles said. And it does not square at all with what this passage we're studying today says either. Because what we're going to see as we turn a corner in verse 35 is the importance of having a complete view, a a balanced view of the Christian faith and of the Christian life. We need to see that a balanced faith is not only a faith that performs, but a balanced faith is also a faith that perseveres. In fact, one of the most important questions about you and your walk with God is not so much how you relate to him when things are going well. No, it's how you relate to him when things are going bad. And in the middle of verse 35, things are about to go very bad, very quickly. In verse 35, you see a major shift takes place as the author uh, starts talking about this second group of people. Verse 35 says there were others. There were others who believed too. There were others who had faith. And yet their lives went quite differently. There were others, we're told, who loved God, who trusted God, who faced the fire, who faced the sword, and yet God did not intervene. There was no escape for them. There were no miracles. There were others, we're told, who were mocked and flogged. There were others, we're told, who were stoned. There were others who were, who were sawn in two. In verse 37, we're told there were others, too, who were, who were killed by the sword. And that's interesting when you remember that in verse 34, just a moment ago, it said that uh, some of the first group of people, by faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. And so by faith, one escaped. And by faith, another was killed. We see this elsewhere in the Bible, too. In Acts chapter 12, for example, verses 1 to 3, it says this. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. But the very next verse tells us that when he tried to do the very same to Peter, God intervened. Listen to what it says. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And so by faith, Peter escaped, while by faith, James was killed. There were others, we're told in verse 35 of Hebrews chapter 11, who were tortured, but they refused to accept release, get this, so that they might rise to a better life. Now, most scholars believe this is a reference to the famous Maccabean martyrs who lived in the time in between the Old Testament and the New You see, there were about 400 years between the Old uh, and New Testaments, known as the intertestamental uh, period. And there are a number of writings that have been recorded, uh, that were recorded during that period that tell us 
some of the things that were going on in that time and in that place. And what was going on at one point was that a, man, that a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes had come into power as the king of Syria, and he conquered Israel, and he occupied Israel, and he was quite vicious and quite oppressive to the people of Israel. This guy, in fact, was a brutal tyrant who did some horrific things. You see, this Antiochus Epiphanes, he used to round up prominent families, and he would bring them out into the public square, and he would call on them to to disobey their God and to, to deny their God and to reject their God and his laws and to instead show allegiance to him and to his laws. And if they wouldn't do it, he would very often torture and kill them right in front of everyone just to make a point, just to make a lesson out of them. In the book of 2 Maccabees chapter 7, written during this intertestamental period, we learn that perhaps the, the most famous of all the martyrs during this time was a mother and seven sons, all of whom one day were brought out into the public square before the king and before a great crowd of people. And starting with one of the sons, the king essentially asked him, will you deny your God and his laws and submit to me and mine? And when the son would not submit to him, the king first had his tongue cut out, and then he had one of his limbs cut off, and then he had him scalped. And then while still breathing and while still alive, he had him roasted alive over a fire in front of his mothers and in front of his brothers too. And when that son was dead, Antiochus Epiphanes, he turned to the next son and he said, what about you? Now get this, we're told in 2 Maccabees chapter 7 that the mother of these seven sons, she stood there and she encouraged, she she encouraged quite vocally each one of her sons to die courageously for God. And listen to what we're told she said at one point in these writings. We're told that filled with a noble spirit, she said to her sons, it was not I who gave you life and breath. It was the creator of the world who devised the origin of all things and who will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again since you now forget yourself for his sake. We're told that one of the other sons, when he was called forward, he put out his tongue, he stretched forth his hands and essentially said, go ahead and take them. I got them from heaven and for God's sake, I will give them up, but from him, I will get them back. And as you keep reading a little further down in the same scene, we're told this about one of the other sons. It says, with his blood now gushing forth, he took his own entrails with both hands and hurled them and with his dying breath called upon the Lord of life to give them back to him again. Every one of these sons died bravely because, because they believed that death would not have the final word. They believed that they would rise again to a better life, it says in verse 35. They believed just as Justin Martyr in the second century AD believed and just as he told his congregation right before they were beheaded, remember, brothers and sisters, they can kill us, but they cannot hurt us. Friends, I'm not trying to be overly sensational by telling these stories, but I do think that you and I need to consider how, how incredibly safe and comfortable our lives are. We need to consider how tightly at times we are holding on to this life and the things of this world. And because we're holding so tightly onto this life and onto the things of this world, 
I think in many cases we're afraid or unwilling to take risks for Jesus. Two different groups of people, both had faith, both were commended by God. One found victory while the other faced death, both by the power of God. And the thing they had in common was that they were both looking forward. That's how they did it. That's how they persevered. Verse 35 says they, they knew they were going to rise again to a better life. Verse 39 says they knew they had not received yet the full promise. Verse 40 says they knew that God was going to provide something better. This is the very same pattern. In fact, we've seen across all of these stories of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. What we've seen again and again is that every one of these individuals we've been studying, they were, they were looking ahead. They were looking forward. They had a hope, you see, about the future that was, a, that was affecting the ways that they were living life in the present. And so our final point today is that a balanced faith not only performs and it not only perseveres, but a balanced uh, faith also is a faith that hopes. And friends, hope is a powerful thing. Hope can shape our lives in profound ways. What we believe about our future controls how we experience our present far more than we even realize. Let me give you two brief illustrations of the power of hope. One is an old tale I was reading about two men. You see, they were captured as prisoners of war, and they were thrown into a dark and dank prison where they were going to suffer hard labor for 10 years. That was their penalty. But just before they were sent into that prison, one of the men learned that his wife and his child had been killed. His family was gone. While the other man learned that his wife and his children were alive, and they were waiting for him. And what happened with these men is that within a pretty short time, the first man, he just kind of uh, withered away and he kind of wasted away and he died. This man had no hope. The other man, however, he endured, he resisted, he stayed strong, and he walked out a free man 10 years later to be reunited with his family. Same circumstance, same situation, and yet these two men they experienced the present, they experienced the here and now in two completely different ways, all because of what they believed about their future. Here's another one. Let's say you hire two people to do the same job in the same room on the same assembly line. When you hire each of them, you tell them that for 10 hours a day, I want you to, uh, I want you to take this part and I want you to fasten it to that part and I need you to do that again and again and again each and every day. Same room, same situation, 10 hours a day, every day, very repetitive, very tedious, very uh, uninteresting. But you tell the first guy that at the end of one year, you'll be paid $20,000 for your labor. And you tell the other person at the end of one year, you'll be paid $20 million for your labor. After the first month or two, the first guy is growing restless. He says, I can't do this. This is too tedious. It's not worth it. I quit. But the other guy has a certain poise about him. He's whistling while he works. He says, this isn't so bad. I don't find it all that tedious uh, at all, really. You see, they're experiencing the same circumstances in two completely different ways because of what they believe about their futures. And so what were these people in Hebrews chapter 11 looking forward to? What were they hoping in? 
that allowed them on the one hand to expect miraculous intervention and deliverance, while at the very same time being prepared to suffer and die in the event that that intervention did not come. The common thread that we see again and again across this study of Hebrews chapter 11 is that they were, they were looking forward to something that they had not yet received, but that they knew was, knew was coming and that they believed uh, deeply was coming. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, we learn that Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, we're told, whose designer and builder is God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, we're told that God has prepared a city for his people. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, we're told that here, in this place, in this life, and in this world, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, it says. And so they were all looking forward in the book of Hebrews to this city with foundations, this uh, city of God. And this is just one of the many metaphors in the Bible for heaven. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 21 talks about this city too. And let me tell you some of the things he tells us about this city. We're told that this city is where God and man will dwell together forever. In verse 4, we're told that in this city, God will wipe away every tear from every eye. And that in this city, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In verse 5, we're told that in this city, God is making uh, all things new. And get this, he says, In this city, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Without payment, he says. That's the freely given grace of the gospel for those who will put their faith and their trust in Jesus in verse 11, we're told that this city, it radiates the glory of God like a most rare jewel. It says, like a jasper, clear as crystal. In verses 18 to 19, we're told that the foundations, foundations of the walls of this city are adorned with, with every kind of jewel. In verse 21, we're told that this city has gates that are made of pearls and streets that are made of gold. And get this, it says that these streets of gold, it says they... It says they look clear. It says they look like transparent glass. And so did, what, what do you do with that? What does that mean, transparent gold? You and I know there's no such thing here in this world as, as transparent gold. There is no clear gold, and yet that is the language that our God, in his inspired scriptures, deliberately puts before us to consider Streets of gold that are like transparent glass. Friends, I think the Bible is asking us here to use our imaginations to imagine what heaven is like. It does this again and again, in fact. It says heaven is, heaven is like this, heaven is like that. The Bible, in fact, uses many very fascinating and very vivid metaphors in describing heaven for us. Heaven is like a city with foundations, as we've just seen. Elsewhere, we're told that heaven is like a kingdom. We're told that heaven is like a great banquet with a great feast. And listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about this celebration and about this feast that we have to, to look forward to. In, in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, 
a feast of well-aged wine, of, uh, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We're told again and again, heaven is like this and heaven is like that. We're told that heaven is like a wedding. We're told that heaven is like a river of pleasure. We're told it's like seeing God face to face. Friends, the Bible is inviting us to use our imaginations. It's like this. It's, it's like that. The Bible is encouraging us to go ahead and imagine it, to, to consider it, to think about it. But then the Bible, at the very same time, says to us that once you've used your imaginations, once you've thought about how wonderful heaven is, once you've thought about how incredible heaven will be, how incredibly over-the-top heaven will be, then I want you to know that it's so much so very much more than even that. This is why the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is also why the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that, that all the sufferings in this life, no matter how extreme, will one day be seen as nothing more than a light and momentary affliction that was merely preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All this imagery is quite remarkable. It's exuberant. It's excessive. It's over the top. And keep in mind who this language is coming from. Remember uh, who inspired all of these words in the first place. This language is coming from the same God who created you and I with the capacity uh, to experience laughter, and to experience love, to appreciate beauty, to see and to feel, to taste and to touch, to experience sensory pleasures of, of many kinds. And he's saying that even the best things you experience in this life, which are many, they cannot compare to what I have waiting for you on the other side. Heaven is like this. Heaven is like that. It's beyond what you and I can possibly fathom. This may be why 13th century pastor and theologian Thomas Aquinas would say that God destines you and I as Christians for an end that is beyond the grasp of our reason. But we do need to think about it. We do need to imagine it. We, do, we need to be a forward a forward-looking people who are fueled and energized in the present by what we believe about our futures. The whole reason you see these people we've been talking about were great was because uh, they weren't afraid of death. And because they were not afraid of death, they were not afraid of anything. And that's how it works, essentially. It's as simple as that, really. That's what will give us balance and buoyancy in our faith and in our lives. That's what will set us free to to celebrate the highs, but also to expect and endure the lows, even very difficult lows, because 
because we're taking God at his word and we're trusting God with the future that he promises to us. One commentator puts it like this. He says essentially that as we look forward to God's promises and as we, as we trust them, we're able to rest in him, whether living or dying, whether comfortable or miserable, knowing and trusting that God himself and the future he has promised is better than anything life can give to us or that death can take away from us. That is a faith held in balance. That is a faith held in tension between these two extremes. That's why one mother could celebrate receiving her sons back from death, and that's why another mother could encourage her sons to die boldly, both by faith. The Maccabean mother believed death was going to be reversed. She trusted that death was not the final word. And do you know what she was saying to her sons as, she faced, as they faced down death? She was essentially saying, it does not matter what anyone does to us. We're going to get those eyes back. We're going uh, to get those limbs back. We're going to get our family back. We're going to get our love back. We're going to get this, this world back and far better than it ever was. And so, boys, there is no need at all to flinch in the face of these people. They could have avoided torture and death, but instead they were given to us as a gift, really, of whom the world was not worthy, we're told in verse 38. They were given to us as a witness to the world that our God is better than life itself. And what a powerful picture that is. Many things in this life are utterly opposite from what they seem, and this is one of them. Seeing death as gain, seeing death as deliverance to something unimaginably better. And so do you believe that? Are you trusting that? Is your life reflecting that in any meaningful way? And do you know what's so incredible uh, this, with this mom and her sons and all these other martyrs? All these people we've been talking about, verse 39 reminds us that they did not receive the promise you and I have been given something, been given something so much better than they, that they didn't have, right? They were looking forward to something that God would do. And we get to look back on what Jesus has already done. We have more revelation. We have more resources. We could and should be living bigger and bolder lives even than they did because we have so much more to put our faith in. After all, there was another who was tortured and would not accept release. There was another who suffered, mock, suffered mocking and flogging and imprisonment. There was another who faced these same things. There was another who was looking forward to. There was another of whom this world is not worthy, and yet he came anyways. His name is Jesus. But why? Why would God himself take on human form and subject himself to the beatings, to the mocking, to the scourging, to the humiliation of the crucifixion? Why in the world would he endure all of that when he did not have to? And the truth is, he was looking forward to. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus was looking forward to and the joy that was set before Jesus, what he was looking forward to, 
what was fueling and energizing him, it was, it was you and I. It was your salvation, and it was, it was my salvation. It was you and I dwelling with him forever in the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. And that's why he did it. The world is not worthy of him. We are not worthy of him, but by his grace, through his gospel, he makes us worthy. And he invites us to look forward to, he invites us to keep our faith in balance, celebrating the highs, expecting and enduring the lows as we trust in the promises to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage today and what it reminds us of. God, would you give us grace to be a people with a balanced faith and with a balanced uh, perspective on what we are to expect from the Christian life in this fallen world. Thank you, God, that you show up in powerful ways in the lives of your people, whether that power comes in the form of a victory to be celebrated or whether that power is a power to endure and even to suffer and die for your sake. God, would you make us a people who can face anything that comes our way as we look forward, as we trust you. Thank you for your promises about our future and the hope that gives to us uh, to live life in the present. Would you give us grace to believe you and to trust you more and more deeply as we journey together uh, through this life in Jesus' name. Amen.